0: Yes, yes. Welcome in to another edition of the Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network. I am your host, Tim McKernan, alongside my producer, John Seymour, also known as the Seamaster. And welcome in for another interview Monday. And uh, today we will have St. Louis City Alderwoman Megan Green, Alderwoman of the 15th Ward, as our guest And uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting your feedback on what she has to say. Now, ideally, what happens is, um, whether it be with John Danforth, whether it be with Ed Martin, uh, whether it be with Megan Green and uh, our political guests down the line, um, even if you disagree, don't believe you like uh, a person and or that person's views uh, you listen, and in an hour and twenty-minute conversation, as the one I had with Megan Green, and the hour conversation I was John Danforth, and the hour conversation I had with Ed Martin, uh, you would get a chance to hear more context, and perhaps um, it would open your mind, change your mind, or maybe you would come away feeling even stronger than you did going in because you. Heard all that they had to say, and not in 15 second sound bites or 140 characters on Twitter. I don't know. I know that's the goal, um, but uh, I know that uh, some people were very unhappy with uh, thinking that this was um, some kind of right wing pod uh, when we had John Danforth and Ed Martin on. And I would imagine there will be those who won't listen to Megan Green, but see that she was on the show and then say, this is some kind of left-wing podcast because I'm having uh, Megan Green on. When in reality, it's just a place that I welcome uh, guests who I think the audience will find interesting. And uh, we have a, you know, hour long or so conversation about a variety of topics, literally a conversation. So, um, I'm anxious to get the feedback uh, on your opinions on uh, what Megan Green has to say here regarding a variety of topics uh, that we discussed, as she is certainly an outspoken um, alder woman here in uh, the city of St. Louis, w- ranging from a topic I know a lot of people want to hear from her from uh, regarding uh, the Rams and that process in 2015, the MLS vote earlier in 2017, the current situation with the Scott Trade Center and the upgrades. Uh, also her marijuana bill that she just uh, introduced. And uh, she has some passionate thoughts on the city of St. Louis as a whole. Uh, so we we get in all that and also some inner workings, at least I felt like inner workings of the relationship between uh, the alderman and uh, the mayor and the president of the board of aldermen and how much that impacts things around the region. So I really enjoyed the conversation. i um, And I I hope that even if you don't agree that uh, you give it a listen, but if not, you know, hey, to each their own. I guess the thing that I would then say is then don't really rip the conversation if you don't listen to the conversation, but I guess feel free to do so. It doesn't necessarily impact things, but uh, I don't really know how you can do so without listening, but to each their own. Uh, We are in the HomeLoanExpert.com studios, Ryan Kelly the sponsor of our studios here, and that is where we did the interview uh, with Megan Green, and um, I really enjoyed the conversation. We had never met before, and all I had really known is what I had seen on social media, what I had seen uh, in the Post-Dispatch, and what I had seen on television, and, um, and I, I, I knew that she was not from St. Louis, um, and so I really enjoyed getting her perspective on St. Louis when she first moved here, uh, I guess it's about 15 years ago at this point, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and then her perspective on what uh, she thinks needs to happen in order to improve St. Louis. So that's what you're going to have here uh, in this next hour and 20 minutes, in addition to some recent history that both sports fans and just people interested in the city uh, and the growth of the region would want to hear from one of those prominent members of uh, the Alderman in the city of St. Louis. Once again, Ryan Kelly welcomes us into the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. He is online at the HomeLoanExpert.com. If you are in the market to buy a home or if you are in the market to refinance, we ask that you support the sponsors of this podcast. And Ryan Kelly is our studio sponsor. You can give him a call at 1-800-991-6494. That's 1-800-991-6494. If you're going to buy a home or if you're going to refinance, there's no place that I can recommend more than Ryan Kelly. So much so that when my sister was getting her home last year, I made sure that she went to Ryan Kelly and the process couldn't have been any smoother. On top of that, they pride themselves on getting you the best rate and giving you top notch customer service. That's why the business continues to grow. That's why there's a good chance, you know the name Ryan Kelly, but also know that the place to go to find out more is the home loan Ryan Kelly, the dot com. So you haven't had a chance to hear from Megan Green before in this uh, amount of time, I don't think. Uh, and now you're going to get a chance to do so. All kinds of topics covered. It is our pleasure to present to you here on the Tim McKernan Show, Alderwoman of the 15th Ward of the City of St. Louis, Megan Green. First off, uh, you're certainly in the news uh, quite often relative to uh, all other uh, aldermen and alderwomen uh, on the board of aldermen. Uh, But when when it gets down to it, how did you become involved in the political process in St. Louis? Why did you become involved in the political process in St. Louis, Megan?
1: So I've had the political bug, I think, since I was a little kid. Uh, for some reason the very first time I got involved with
0: nothing stood out to you as a young person it, You're like I like this
1: I I liked Bill Clinton
0: you liked Bill Clinton and his, I w- his presidential campaign in 92 you in got 92, involved right. yes
1: I was 10 years old and for some reason I just was fixated on this and I became this kid that you know rather than idolizing you know movie stars and sports stars and stuff like that I really liked politicians mm-hmm. and um and I became I think pretty wonky, and, you know. Even as a as a little kid, and you know, my parents didn't exactly know where I got this from, but um, but as I got older, I continued to to get involved. When I was a, a senior in high school, I won an essay contest that allowed me to go to the DNC, wow. um, even though I wasn't even old enough to vote yet. And um, and then I went to college at Penn State as a meteorology major, and. All of my professors and my high school teachers kind of looked at me like, what is she doing? Um, She's very passionate about all these causes. She's very much an activist. Um, And three weeks into my freshman year, 9-11 happened. And it just, it changed a lot of perspective for me and concerned about, you know, some of the policy decisions we were making. So I ended up changing my major to political science. Like
0: right there? Like that quickly? That
1: next uh, semester. Wow. I changed it over to political science and, uh, you know, spent a summer in, in Washington, you know, doing interning and, and things like that. And then ended up president of college Democrats for Penn State, did a ton of work on the Kerry campaign. And um, so when I moved to St. Louis, it was just, you know, that's what I, you know, it was it was just natural for me to start to figure out, well, what are the politics here and how do I start to get involved? Yeah.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: So I grew up in a small town um, in upstate New York, New York called uh, Oneonta. Um, how do I
0: know o- Oneonta?
1: So we had that, the National it, Soccer Hall of Fame. Okay. Um, and so that was kind of our claim to fame. Is that
0: near Cooperstown?
1: It is. You have to drive through Oneonta to get to Cooperstown. I was in
0: Cooperstown when Ozzy Smith went to the Hall of Fame in 2002, and that's why it stood out to me.
1: We are double the size of Cooperstown. Oh, is that right? (laughs) But, like, like, people from Cooperstown have to come down to our town to, like, you know, really shop, but nobody knows who... Who we are. Uh,
0: uh, so yeah, Oneonta, I, I remember it stood out to me. So you go from Oneonta and you live there until you go to Penn to State? Penn State. All right.
1: And then after Penn State, I moved here to do something called the Coro Fellows Program. Uh, okay. Um, and and it's what was a, that? It's a postgrad program in public affairs. All right. So you spend six week placements in every sector of society. So you get to work in a nonprofit, a labor union, a government organization, a corporation, a political campaign. Um, and then you have to find somebody to hire you to do a project for six months okay. or for six weeks. Okay. And um, it's very intensive. You don't know, you know, where you're going to be placed until the night before. You don't know what your project is till you show up. You have to learn how to, you know, really critically think and uh, and think in your feet. And and through that process, I really learned how St. Louis, you know, the different sectors work together sometimes and don't work together other times. Of other times, and, sure. Uh, And I felt like um, I would be crazy to leave St. Louis after doing that program because you just you learn so much about um, our city and our region and, and its challenges and um, and I felt like I could go somewhere else, and it could take me a lifetime to to learn that much.
0: What was your impression of St. Louis before you got here? Had you been here at all, having been from upstate New York and been going to Penn State?
1: Yeah, my so my parents are originally from Kansas City, Okay. so my uh, extended family is scattered throughout the state, and so most holidays I spent somewhere, you know, in Missouri. Okay. So, you know, I had been to St. Louis many times growing up. It wasn't foreign to me um I actually wanted to come here because the the Coro Fellows program happens in five different cities and I requested to come to St. Louis because I knew I would have family just Mm -hmm. a couple hours away um but it was you know until you live here you don't I think understand some of the challenges
0: the thing about it and I you know I grew up in the city my parents still live on Tam Avenue uh 16th Ward and uh and love it and absolutely (laughs) love it um But having traveled for my job as a sportscaster Mm -hmm. and getting a chance to see a number of cities, St. Louis strikes me as being, and I'm curious what your impression of it is, uh, as being one of the most provincial cities Mm -hmm. that I have visited. Ironically, when I have some friends in San Francisco, uh, they'll say San Francisco is provincial, which you would never (laughs) think. That's like, like, uh, you know, counterintuitive. But then cities like Atlanta, Dallas, uh, Transient— First off, would you consider St. Louis Mm -hmm. provincial, especially being somebody who grew up in upstate New York? And then secondarily, uh, is it your opinion that that helps or hurts uh, the city's progress?
1: You know, I I think it's a couple things. You know, when I moved here initially, the thing that struck me the most was the racial division. Um, You know, I had... You know, coming from upstate New York, I, it was a college town. It was a fairly, you know, diverse town just because of the college. What college? Being I there. Um, State University of New York, oh, at Oneonta, yeah. um okay, yeah, and right. Hartwick College. So right. we had more students in the town than we had, <laughs> ah. you know, residents. And um, and then, you know, living in Washington, D.C. for a while and living in Chicago. Um, but when I moved to St. Louis, I you know, I just the the disparity was something that couldn't be ignored. Um, you know, the the infamous Del Mar divide is something that, you know, you get schooled on almost as soon as you live here and people telling you, well, don't, you know, don't go north of Del Mar, especially not at night. And um, and these were, were things to me that caught me really off guard that there was um, such division in that folks, um, like native St. Louisans were just kind of like, well, it's always been this way. and. Um, and so I think if we're talking about it being provincial, uh, I, I think that the the way that St. Louis could be perceived as that is almost a, a defeatist attitude, that these are just our problems and they've been that way for a long time. And so there's nothing we can really do to change this. And, you know, what I would rather see us say is, yeah, we have some really, you know, big challenges in the city, but let's start to think about what we could look like mm-hmm and work toward that rather than just, you know, throwing our hands up in the air and saying these challenges are too big.
0: It's interesting you bring that up. It has always been my impression, uh, and I grew up in the 1980s, uh, mm-hmm. the racial divide in St. Louis. Uh, it is my opinion that that is our biggest problem. Mm-hmm. I truly I that. I believe that. that. Um, and, and and oftentimes when I'm having the discussion, obviously our audience on the radio show Uh, certainly uh, would cover the metropolitan area. I would imagine it would be the majority would live outside of the actual city, Mm -hmm. uh, as in county people, St. Charles County, Metro East. But growing up, I remember in the uh, 1980s, something that was almost like kind of, I don't want to say commonplace, but I know I heard it more than one time uh, that the minute uh, a black family would move into the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. my parents say we're putting a for sale sign in the front yard. And And I remember asking my mom, and saying, what, 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 what what is that about? You know, what is that? I'm like six years old. I mean, what the hell do I know? And I, and and she said, well, unfortunately, there are some people who think that if a black family were to move in, that would hurt the value of their house. And again, I'm six, so I'm not operating at a high level of critical thought here, but I'm going, okay, but why? She goes, well, some of those people think that, that if they do that, then they wouldn't be able to afford to keep up the house, and I'm thinking to myself, well, if you can afford the house again, I'm six. <laughs> yes. But if you can afford the house, then why wouldn't you be able to afford the? So it just it didn't make sense to right. me. And then now, you know, 30 plus years later, I'm going, okay, it just was pure bigotry, yeah. is what it was. And I feel like so many of the issues that wind up going nowhere in St. Louis or causing tension in St. Louis are rooted in racial bigotry and or distrust, or when it really gets down to it, ignorance. And right. I feel like that is what yes. curtails progress.
1: I, I agree with that. I think it's, you know, it's sometimes the ability to place yourself in someone else's shoes. You know, I hear a lot, um, you know, I've been a big advocate for police reform and, um, you know, I've been out with, you know, the protests and, and Black Lives Matter movement. And from, you know, the number one thing I will hear from folks who are not out there and who haven't been involved is, um, is just a disbelief that, you know, privilege exists or that people are treated differently by police or whatever, because that hasn't been their experiences. You know, their experiences have been that they've worked hard, they haven't had anything handed to them, and so uh, and so there there's no issues. I think we've got to get to a point where we can recognize that all of our experiences aren't the same, and we have to be listening to folks who do have different experiences, and if um, and believe them when they when they talk about those experiences. Mm-hmm. When somebody tells us that they, um, you know, that they can't leave a certain neighborhood, their own neighborhood um without being you know profiled then we need to listen to that we need to believe that and we need to figure out as a as a community what are we doing to address that you know i've had multiple constituents who have come to me with concerns like that and um and it's you know it's our responsibility in in city government to you know, to change some of these systems that really work differently for different people.
0: You're in the 15th Ward. You're the older woman of the 15th Ward. What is the constituency makeup of the 15th Ward?
1: It's pretty diverse. Um, So we're, uh, you know, as of last census, we're about 51% Caucasian, uh, 38% African-American. And then the, the rest is a mix of every nationality under the sun. We have the International Institute that is right outside of um, the boundaries of the wards we have a, a pretty large immigrant and refugee community obviously the South Grand business district has a ton of um, immigrant owned businesses there uh, and we really proud ourselves on diversity but that that also doesn't mean that we don't have challenges associated with it and um, and so as a community we're constantly working on how do we make our neighborhood organizations more inclusive how do we, um, you know, how do we temper our social media? We have a, a very well-known uh, Facebook group for Tower Grove South. <laughs> um,
0: now, that- does that get heated as it go on the attack? Because I, I am familiar with yeah. this. How would you describe the, the I mean, famous it's, Facebook?
1: It's interesting because you'll have somebody who will, will step in and, and, you know, who will make a post particularly about crime and, Um, As in a resident
0: or does somebody drop in from outside? A a resident. Okay.
1: Um, You know, occasionally somebody from the outside, but but sometimes a resident. And, you know, something will get said that could be perceived as profiling. And our community just comes in in full force of, like, correcting (laughs) the way that people are speaking. And, you know, we kind of joke that we have you know, this white folk work, you know, group that kind of steps in and is challenging, you know, a lot of, um the, the normal notions about uh, crime and policing and, and even, you know, I, and I've seen a, a remarkable change over the last um, three years in kind of the dialogue around this. You know, it used to, the dialogue used to always be, you know, as soon as a crime happened, well, we just need more police. And now we're seeing more people say, you know what? Police are reactionary. They're not proactive. We keep cutting all of these services that actually would prevent crime. Um, what if we started to rethink the way that we are addressing these issues and, um, and recognizing that police don't make all people feel safe and, um, and that's a problem. And so what do we need to do to change the systems we have so that it doesn't matter, you know, what your, what the color of your skin is or your socioeconomic status, you feel comfortable that you can call the police and that you will be, you know, served the same way as, as any other resident and, those are difficult conversations, but they're ones that, you know, we are having a lot in our community. And I I feel grateful to represent an area like that.
0: There is some legislation. uh, I would imagine many of our listeners uh, may have seen some of the commercials regarding uh, P, which certainly Mm -hmm. is getting uh, plenty of attention. You have uh, been discussing it. Give our audience an idea of uh, what that vote is Mm -hmm. and where you come down on it.
1: Sure. So Proposition P um, is... A uh, half percent sales tax increase that is being proposed um, on the November seventh ballot, so next or this coming Tuesday, and the bulk of it will go to fund uh, raises for police in the city, and um, I'm opposed to it, and I'm I'm opposed to it for um, a couple of reasons. Basically, I think it's the the wrong funding mechanism at the wrong time. Um, and looks at public safety in the wrong way. So, you know, we just raised our sales taxes in the city back in April. And so this would be the second sales tax increase in, in six months. And we know that uh, sales taxes disproportionately hurt people who are poor. And right now people who are under the poverty level are already spending 5% of their income in sales taxes in the city. Um, If this passes, we'll be 3% higher in our sales tax in St. Louis County. Um, Areas where we have special taxing districts um, like SIDs and TDDs will get pushed over 11%, which is, um, you know, we'll we'll have the third highest level in the country, um, which I also think is problematic. I I think a better way to do this would be through a payroll tax that, um, that puts the burden on big business rather than on on folks who are poor, who we also know don't always have the best relationship with police. Um, you know, This the second reason I've been opposed to it is um, the city had a, uh, an audit of the overtime system for the police department uh, come out last uh, last spring, I guess it was. And it found that there was a lot of misuse of police overtime funds. And we actually have four officers that have been indicted on felony charges um, because of mismanagement of those funds. We still haven't gotten any um, remedy for, you know, how good accounting practices are going to be used to make sure that, you know, Overspending doesn't happen. That we don't find find ourselves in a situation again um, where we're just uh, where you know officers are working. In some cases, I think it was 13 hours a day, 365 days a year, which you just know isn't um, isn't possible. Um, and I think the third thing we have to really uh, you know remember about this tax as well is we do need police reform in St. Louis City. I mean, the Ferguson Commission has given us a um, pretty long list of things that we need to do to change. And so if we are talking about raises, we also need to be talking about um, linking accountability to those raises. So if if the goal is to see more officers living in um, the communities that they are policing, then what we need to be doing is giving raises or bonuses to folks who are making the choice to live in those communities. Um, we need to be looking at, you know, we're supposed to develop a, a use of force database. Okay, that use of force database gets developed and then, you know, every officer in the department gets a $3,000 bump. You know, those are the things that we need to be looking at to make sure that we're not just putting money into a system that's really not working and that we're we're actually um, using money to make sure that that system becomes the system that we want it to be.
0: I would imagine for our audience hearing this, I think a default position is, oh, if you're against Proposition P, then, then the transitional thought then goes to then you must be anti-police. And I would imagine you would immediately refute that. Yeah.
1: And and we hear that a lot in this this us versus them, you know, mentality, I think needs to stop. I mean, nobody is anti-police. What we are what we are is pro accountability. We want a police force where um, that is representative of the folks in St. Louis city. We want a police force that is really practicing community policing. We want one that is really accountable um, to the citizens that it serves. And we're not seeing that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since Ferguson, uh, we've done very little um, in the city of St. Louis to really work toward any of the Ferguson commission goals. And, um, and so th- that means we have to rethink the way that we're we're doing things. Why
0: haven't those things, in your opinion,
1: been implemented? I think those- it's a lack of political will. Um, you know, there's there's not um, a ton of folks who are working on really pushing the envelope. Where would and- that leadership?
0: come from you're of course an alder where would you want that leadership does that come from the county executive from the mayor where does that? i mean
1: come? It, it really needs to come from the the mayor and the president of the board of aldermen i mean you you look at the the mayor can create a vision for the city the president of the board of aldermen is in charge of um basically the legislative agenda for the city and you know a lot of the things that the the ferguson commission wants us to do need to come through uh, the board of aldermen, and so you know that means we have to have leadership at the top of the board that is willing to push those issues, even if it makes them go against some of their campaign donors or their, you know their their previous supporters or things like that. Um, and so I mean, it, these policy, you know, decisions that that we're supposed to be making they're not easy, mm-hmm. and um, and I think there's a tendency to want to avoid conflict, and um, but the the truth is. You know, change never happens without being uncomfortable. And so we need to get uncomfortable at city hall. We need to really be discussing these issues. and um but I just haven't seen really the the leadership that we need to really, you know double down and commit to to really changing.
0: I want to go through a few perceptions that I think a number of the people who are listening to this have of the city mm-hmm. and you tell me if you think they're inaccurate or if you think they're accurate, first off, if you, live, take your pick here in Kirkwood, Chesterfield, St. Charles, if you live in Edwardsville uh, in the Metro East, I'm not going into the city. It is crime ridden. What would your response be to that?
1: I mean, I, I get very frustrated, I'll be honest, by, you know, a lot of our TV news in particular that is always sensationalizing, you know, any crime that happens in the city. Crime happens in any place that is densely populated. Um, are our crime levels high in the city, especially violent crime? Yes. What we also know, though, is a lot of that violent crime happens between people who know each other. Um, it's not, um, for the most part, innocent, you know, bystanders. Um, and I think that it, it does a disservice to all of the great things that are happening in the city, all of the great events, all the great restaurants. When um, when, in particular, with the media, we only hear about the negative, and we never hear about the the positive.
0: Mm-hmm. St. Louis is a dying city
1: uh, i I think anybody who drives around the city would see that that's not true. We have an unprecedented number uh, or amount of redevelopment that's happening in the city right now. I mean, we have over a billion dollars of of redevelopment that's happening over the next couple of years. And that's um, that's amazing. I mean, when I first moved into Tower Grove South, you know, for 13 years ago now, it, uh, you know, we still had every few houses on the block that I, I lived on boarded up. Uh, and now we've gotten to a point where there are very few that are left that haven't been rehabbed or haven't been brought back onto the market or put as as rental housing. And so, uh, I mean, we, we've seen a tremendous amount of revitalization um, in a lot of our neighborhoods. With that said, we've had a lot of uneven redevelopment. So we've, we've seen a ton of redevelopment in the Central Corridor and parts of South City, um, but we still by and large haven't seen that same redevelopment in north, north city. city and we have to you know we have to be honest about looking at our our development strategies and and how we allocate resources to make sure north city is taken care of just as much as south city
0: st louis will continue to get passed by by other cities of its size in the region unless st louis county and st louis city merge your opinion
1: i mean i i think that there are some benefits Obviously, to to merging, but there's also, I think, some concerns. Um, you know, my my biggest concern with the with merging right now is that the conversations are largely being led by uh, the business community and a handful of wealthy individuals with particular interests in merging. Um, And that concerns me because to me, that that means that it's not necessarily um, the conversations that we're having are not necessarily for the benefit of um, of folks who live in the city or for people who are poor, people of color. And um, but I do think that there are things that we can be doing to to work together Better. You know, I, I think that we can be looking at how we streamline certain services across city and county. Um, you know, using the same contract for city and county services, um, looking at um, really a regional development plan. Um, Because we we still, even though we have the the economic partnership, we still have this constant narrative of, well, if the city doesn't give this business all the tax incentive that they want, they're just going to go to the county. And there's, you know, there's still that fight. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that there's things that we can be doing now. But ultimately, you know, if. If we merge, it has to be a vote of the people um, and the process needs to be set up in a way that it's really listening to the concerns of folks, especially those who are most often left out of the system. I
0: think the impetus for that merger discussion entering the mainstream, and by mainstream I'm talking about people who I don't think were even paying attention to that uh, over the last couple of years, was what transpired in particular, I think with the Rams, but then perhaps even more so with the, with the MLS vote. Yeah. Um, so let's let's go back to a few of these because when you talk about the Rams, and you talk about the MLS vote, now mm-hmm. uh, what uh, was just introduced as we are sitting here today uh, to the Ways and Means Committee with uh, your cohort, uh, 20th World older Woman uh, Kara Spencer and the bill regarding the Scott Trade Center upgrades. Uh, sports does enter into this discussion mm-hmm. in, in three different parts with the Rams and the task force going back to 2015, mm-hmm. on the outside looking in, uh, Megan, it seemed like it was organized chaos or just chaos. I don't know. I don't know if organized chaos is <laughs> I think it was chaos. It was chaos, was it?
1: <laughs> I mean, I I think that there was just this urgency to get something done. Um, and sometimes when there's this, this urgency to just get something done, Um, A lot of T's aren't crossed, a lot of I's aren't dotted. Um, You know, the things that a lot of folks didn't realize is is the Rams didn't generate positive income for the city, that we were paying $2 million a year out of general revenue to support the Rams stadium um, because the revenues that they brought in did not exceed the costs that we had to put out as a city to run that stadium. And that was with county participation. And so then we're looking at a deal where there's no county participation in it, and um, and that the maintenance of the this new facility was put on the city, and we were looking at potentially having eight to ten million dollars a year coming out of general revenue to support that stadium. We just, we can't do that. We can't pick up trash on time in the city right now. And so, you know, it, it's forcing us to have these conversations about our priorities. And and yes, it would be lovely to have all of these sports teams here, but if we can't pick up trash, we can't, um, you know, pay officers well, we can't, um, you know, fix a lot of our infrastructure issues, then we can't be doing these deals that are going to take more money away from general revenue
0: when we hear uh those on the other side who are for uh whether it be in 2015 with the task force Mm -hmm. or whether it be with the mls or now talking about uh, the scott trade center which we will get to momentarily they say well the people that come to support whether it be Mm -hmm. back then the rams or would come for the mls or do come for the st louis blues that brings money into the mm-hmm. city and tax dollars into the city.
1: And they're correct, it does. Just not enough tax dollars to cover the costs of running and maintaining a stadium. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's where we get into the problems because a lot of these deals are structured where a lot of the tax revenue ends up going back to the team rather than going to the city of St. Louis. And that's the problem with these deals. Are
0: they is if, that sim- similar to other markets yes. throughout the United States?
1: I mean, basically the system we have set up now and this is we really need some federal um, legislation in, in this, because what happens right now with all of these sports teams and Amazon is doing this right now too, um, is that they, they basically create this competitive market of who is going to give us the biggest handout. So we will go there so we can make the most money as a team. And so, you know, they're, they're negotiating, basically getting all of the tax revenue that's generated at that stadium going back to the team, not going to the city. Or they are negotiating getting the ticket taxes that are supposed to go to the city back to, you know, the team. And so there's all of these things that get written into these deals that really make it so that they're not financial money winners for cities
0: mentioning that uh i spoke with people with the rams throughout that process i know is almost you know that that would be uh, that would kill a political career so to speak if uh, if i were in your position but just to try to understand what was going on yeah. i know one of the impressions of the people at the rams was they know and by they uh, they being the task force that there is no way in the world this is ever mm-hmm. going to work yeah. and this is political cover For those currently in office, not necessarily all their women, but those currently in, uh, whether it be in Jefferson City or in City Hall, uh, to not have blood on their hands when the Rams move. Do you think there's truth to that?
1: I mean, I I think that some folks definitely felt like it was political cover. Um, The issue we ran into, though, is between local uh, and state resources, we ended up spending over $16 million on a failed attempt to keep a team and at what time does that go from you know being political cover to really being a misuse of public funds and um and and again that was a lot of my concern throughout the entire thing and and I felt like um, from what I was hearing kind of at the grassroots level at, in the city that people were, Fed up that we were even having these conversations, and I told folks then that I thought if we took took it to a vote, it would not pass. Um, and I think we saw, you know, two years later that that I was right that if we Took a publicly financed stadium to a vote, it wasn't going to pass because folks in the city want their trash picked up. They want, you know, to to have a, a fast response time for police or EMS. They want to have streets that are well paved and sidewalks that, you know, don't have a ton of bumps in them. And um, and when we can't do that, when we can't give a very basic level of service, then folks get really fed up um with the way that we are using money
0: in 2015 uh, you said i have a person who is very close to me who was offered a political favor that if that person could get me to come off my stance in opposition to the stadium i imagine if that is happening to me it's happening to others at the board of aldermen that was a certainly a headline worthy Mm -hmm. statement uh you were saying that you had a family member that was offered a bribe a vote? You
1: know, I, I'm, you know, really trying to move past all of that right now, but, you know, the long and short of it is there's a, there's a lot of folks that are trying to put pressure on, you know, not just elected officials, but people that are close to them um, to get them to, to do what they want. And that strikes um, an
0: outsider is it, horrifying, really. It,
1: but it, I, you know, I think the longer that I'm at the board, I see that, you know, this horse trading happens all the time. This. It's one of the things that I hate about politics. I'll, well, in I'll DC, put it that we way. hear
0: about you know back in the day yeah. earmarks, you know, right. and that was just kind of all right. I'll, you give my district this, then I'll make sure I vote for your your bill that I really right. I'm not on board. I mean,
1: right. we have something at the board called aldermanic courtesy, and it's something that I think holds the city back a lot um, because what it what it basically says is like if there's something I want to do in my ward, if it's a development, if it's a stop sign, whatever, um, everybody's just going to support that regardless of whether it's good or not, um, because it's in my ward and I, you know, I'm kind of the, the steward of that ward. And so then, you know, when it comes time for something in your ward, I'm going to support that, you know, without question either. The problem with that system is we've got into a place where we had $700 million in foregone tax revenue because of TIFs and tax abatements, because every tax abatement, every TIF is supported by everybody else because nobody wants their project to get struck down. And so, you know, we're talking about culture change here and recognizing that we need to have citywide plans. We need to, um, you know, recognize that if 80 percent of our incentives are going into the wealthiest areas of St. Louis like they are right now, then we need to change the way that we do that system. Um, but until we get rid of, I think, some of this, you know, the culture that that has allowed this system to take place, we're, we're not going to see um, this change. Is
0: there a city that you look to uh, or cities that you go, they got it right. That should be our muse for, mm-hmm. for the model we follow.
1: You know, it depends on the issue. Uh, so I sit on the board of directors of a national organization called Local Progress. And basically it's a an um, an organization that brings together local progressive elected officials. And we share model policy um, a lot of the way that, you know, ALEC does at the state level, except I would like to say we're using it for good. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and so... You know, when when I when we have an issue here in St. Louis, um, like police reform, I can go. I can put out an email basically to all of these elected officials across the country and say, hey, who has had this issue that we're dealing with um, and what did you do to address it? And um, and we will, you know, have a conference call over it or, you know, send over the legislation that they passed and start to build off of that. And quite fr- frankly, I think we need more of that because there, there's a lot of things that other cities are doing well um, that, that we could bring here if we just, you know, try. We,
0: we hear, you know, I mean, Indianapolis cited as an example. Again, yes. not, 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 it's not fair to compare St. Louis. I don't think it would be considered fair anyway to compare St. Louis to a Chicago or New York or whatever the case might be. But Midwest cities of the similar mm-hmm. market size, Indianapolis, Louisville, here quite often. Memphis. Uh, Memphis, Kansas yeah. City seems like yeah. it's certainly surged, whereas St. Louis, I think, was considered to be, you know, light years ahead of Kansas City 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It feels like to some, Kansas City is starting to pass St. Louis. How do you feel about those comparisons potentially contrasting St. Louis with those cities in the Midwest? I
1: mean, I think we it's fair to contrast us with those cities. But um, in doing so, that needs to give us the drive to implement some of the policies that they're implementing. And, you know, when we see that something is working in another Midwestern city, um, we can do that here because a, a lot then of, then
0: why doesn't it get, then the initial reaction is, well, why doesn't it get done? What is right. the reason you, you would, I mean, I, I think than- it's
1: a, a lack of political will a lot of times. I mean, I, I've stood up there on the board of aldermen and had and cited research from other cities about, um, you know, different public policies. And I've been told, well, research doesn't apply here that, um, unless it's research that was specifically done in St. Louis, it's not applicable and, and that's just kind of the um, – that's a mindset that we need to get past because our problems are not unique. Every city or a lot of cities have these same issues when it comes to racism, when it comes to policing, when it comes to poverty, when it comes to um, – you know, how we you know allocate our resources in a tax incentive system so we can learn things from other cities. We just have to be willing to do it.
0: Yeah. I, I, the MLS vote was something that was I truly figured that would I, that would pass. But then I recall mm-hmm. talking with some people close to it and they're going, our polling's showing it's not doing well. Yeah. And then the thought process was, oh, my God, it's not going to win. And so we're actually going to pull back our campaign so it doesn't become. Uh, a reminder to people of what's going on, because if they remind people of it, then they might be more apt to go vote against it. That was actually right. the strategy, kind of, again, counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. I gather, based on what you said regarding the RAM situation, mm-hmm. that you were not surprised that the MLS did not.
1: I wasn't. And, and you know, sometimes I- I think people in the county <laughs> were. Yes. And, and I think it's just, it's this disconnect that we continually have from the feelings of everyday people on the ground in St. Louis City versus the, you know, the feelings of developers and and people with more money who are largely driving a lot of these development deals. You know, I sometimes say that in St. Louis, we have what I call shiny object syndrome, where we are constantly chasing after the next shiny object, the next big project, when the development that is really helped st louis is that neighborhood level development that has gone block by block you know business district by business district that has worked to you know help small businesses open at a neighborhood level and given them the support to grow but we don't see a lot of work at city hall going into that neighborhood level development we make it very difficult to to operate a small business in the city of st louis but any you know, large company that has the money to to hire the attorneys to put together a big development deal or whatever, can get what they want. Mm-hmm. And we've got to start to rethink that um, and put emphasis back on that neighborhood level development.
0: You got to have insurance anyway. So let's make sure that you're doing business with somebody who is sponsoring this podcast, James Carlton of the James Carlton Agency, Estate Farm Insurance Agent. You have to have insurance already. Why not make to the switch to a local business that's a supporter of this here fine presentation and of the local community and also represents the number one company in the industry, and that's James Carlton. Text quote to 314-961-4800. That's quote to 314-961-4800, and one of his incredible team members will reach out to you, or you can just visit carltoninsurance.com. That he has a massive team of seven. If you need something, it's going to get done. He prides himself on that team. I've met the team. I've been in the office, and you can see why they have the reputation they do. They have achieved the chairman circle two years in a row, and that's the Lombardi Trophy of State Farm Agents. Only two agencies in the St. Louis area can say that. They're a strong supporter of the local community. As a matter of fact, here coming up, that they're going to be doing this holiday season as they post up at the Webster Grove Starbucks, uh, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and then treating everyone that comes in from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. is a way to give back to the community. And also on December 16th, they do free gift wrapping. and uh, you don't even have to be a customer and encourage people who take them up on it to leave a donation for Cardinal Glenn. And that's the kind of operation the James Carlton Agency is, both commitment to the community and then also commitment to giving you top-of-the-line service. Text quote to 314 One of his incredible team members will reach out to you or visit carltoninsurance.net. If your insurance costs a leg and an arm, then call James Carlton State Farm. And uh, finally, to hit the the third of the sports topics, uh, because this is something, again, when we have the conversations (laughs) here at what is a sports talk station, even though our show certainly isn't uh, hardcore sports, uh, we had Kara Spencer in Mm -hmm. and she discussed her plan, uh, as we are taping, as I just uh, made reference to, uh, she just this morning introduced the bill that changes the funding mechanism for the upgrades of Scott Trade Center, uh, BB-130, and she says the bill will save the city $106 million, prevent massive budget cuts, and provide for all mm-hmm. upgrades. What is your opinion?
1: I mean, this is the way that we should have gone about this from the beginning. I mean, looking at a ticket tax um, instead, so that folks that are actually using the product or the ones that are paying for it rather than putting it you know the onus on on folks in the city who quite frankly can probably never afford to go to a game and um and so you know i really applaud her for you know diving in and really figuring out a different funding mechanism for it um we need to do more i think of of kind of looking at things from you know this point of view rather than just acquiescing to whatever you you know, development deal is put in front of us.
0: The, the the my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong. We did discuss this with uh, Alderwoman Kara Spencer when she was in studio. I think that was a few weeks ago. Uh, people are going. Well, hold on a second. Was it wasn't this already passed? What's going on? Why what what's going on with now? We're going back. What what happened there?
1: So we're we're at a place where there's been lawsuits against the city for this, um, for what we passed previously, and the comptroller. Um, who is in charge of issuing uh, the bonds for it, has said that she's not going to sign it because it will hurt the credit rating of the city. Uh, I mean, this was something that passed by only one vote when we uh, passed it initially. It was rushed through the Board of Aldermen at the very last moment. And Kara
0: said that you guys didn't have a copy of the lease, which was... was stunning when she said that.
1: We had next to no information on this. Even the sponsor of the bill, President Reid, changed his vote on the floor from being for it to being against it um, while we were debating it. So we did.
0: And you usually don't line up in the same camp as. uh, No, it
1: was, um, you know, but I I think what was so it, it was our very last meeting and we were going from Um, You know, we did the second reading perfection of the bill, and then we're um, trying to do a third reading of it so we could just get it done and not have to you know, come back into session. And between that second and that third reading, again, in the same meeting, um, he changed his vote from um, being for it to being against it. Uh, I think a lot of the reason that happened is because during the time we were debating, a news story hit that showed that he had taken $100,000 the day before from— the people who were pushing through this Scott Trade funding deal. Who are the people um, who
0: are pushing through? So the there, um,
1: there was David Stewart, who is one of the owners, um, or one of the, I guess, fine financers of it. Um, and then there was also um, a donation from one of the construction companies that. Um, like architecture firms that would have been involved in it. And, you know, I think that's the type of stuff that makes people not trust politicians when they see that, um, you know, folks are continually taking large scale donations from the people that are pushing these development deals um, right as these deals are going through the board. It's, you know, it gives people pause and about, you know, who we're really doing business for. So, uh, you know, the fact that 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 became public the fact that you know he changed his vote the fact that it only uh it then only passed because marlene davis came in and and then changed her vote from no to yes so that it would pass
0: what Was her explanation for going um, no to yes after all the information i think just to get?
1: make sure that it didn't fail um and so, I mean, it was a really um, those of us who were kind of sitting on the floor at the time were just like, "What is going on here?" And um, and we had felt very, you know, ill-equipped to really make a decision on this. Well, not having
0: the lease strikes me as just, that's, that's like, that's something you'd like write in a script on Netflix or something. Whose, whose responsibility know, these, is that?
1: These things happen all the time though. Um, what folks don't realize is until about a, a year and a half ago or so when uh, Antonio French passed legislation to require that we have fiscal notes attached to our bills, we did not have fiscal notes. So we never knew how much something we were passing actually cost. And uh, that's either
0: irresponsible (laughs) or corrupt. I mean, that's my reaction to it. I I, I mean, certainly irresponsible. It's just a matter of if there's malice behind it. I mean, how? I
1: I mean, when I first got down to the board, again, that was one of the things that I was just amazed by. I, I got my first, you know, large development deal. I'm sitting in committee and I flipped to the back of it, expecting to see a fiscal note with a, you know, analysis. And It didn't exist. And it took, um, you know, a long time, you know, at least a year of kind of a group of us pushing to get us to a point where we started to get some real financial numbers behind some of these deals, Um, because even a small tax abatement, you know, has a financial implication to the city and um, and we need to know how much each one of these things costs. And, and if it's if there's not a definitive answer, we need at least, you know, that ballpark range of, you know, it could cost the city a million dollars to three million dollars. Um, but, you know, we we just haven't had that level of of knowledge or detail given to us.
0: What do you think will transpire here with what uh, Alderwoman Spencer has introduced?
1: You know, it, I think it's tough to say. I th- I think she has the votes. I know she's been working really hard. Um, is that going to cause all
0: hell to break loose with the relationship between the city and the St. Louis Blues? Uh,
1: you know, I, I think we're at a place where nothing's going to move forward unless some other bill is passed. I mean, the, the comptroller has definitely made her stance very clear, and uh, and I don't see that changing unless, you know, something within this changes. And and I think if, we, if we're if we changing the funding mechanism for it and we're creating a system that really isn't gonna hurt the city's credit and isn't gonna take money away from general revenue, I think that's gonna be something that, um, that we can get some more support behind.
0: I think blues fans who are listening to this are going, and sports fans in St. Louis are going, my God, just two years ago, we lost the Rams. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there's tension between the funding for this and, and, and the Blues. God, I can't can't afford to piss off another team. Mm-hmm. What would your response be to that? I mean,
1: we've heard throughout this discussion, we've heard absolutely no inkling that, you know, the Blues are looking to leave or anything like that. And, you know, I'm confident that we can reach a negotiation. Um, it just has to be something that, you know, is in the best interest of, of taxpayers in the city. And that isn't going to drain our resources, isn't going to then make us have to turn around and come back to the voters yet again for another tax increase. Um, Because that's what we're doing. You know, about at least once a year, we're coming back to the voters and asking for a sales tax increase or a property tax increase or or something. Um, And I think folks in the city are just feeling really tapped out.
0: See, and that's why then I go back to the merger thing wouldn't that, and again, I recognize where you're, because you're, it's not like you're saying I'm against the merger, you just have some concerns about it, but wouldn't, and please correct me if I'm wrong, wouldn't the merger truly help tend to that by taking the burden off of the city if it were to yeah. pa- Who's to know if it's even yeah. if I it mean, it, it definitely legally and or with a, with a vote?
1: It, it definitely has the possibility. I think that there's, you know, it's just, it's such a complex issue because we, we also have to look at all of these municipalities and what, you know, happens with with them in terms of, um, is there municipal consolidation in the County? Um, or do we, you know, how is this system set up? How basically? do you
0: view all the municipalities? Cause currently one of the, you know, talking points you can certainly get uh, likes and retweets on is by, <laughs> you know, essentially pissing on the multiple municipalities that have like 50 people living in well How do you view? I it?
1: mean, I, I think there definitely needs to be some consolidation. Um, the, the biggest concern that I hear is, um, That in that consolidation, there's a potential to dilute political power, especially political power among uh, African-American leaders in the county um, who, quite frankly, don't always have a voice in these conversations. And so to me, we have to figure out a system that is going to still allow those voices to be heard. That's not going to allow for continued disinvestment in North County. Um, And we, I don't think that we've seen that plan thus far. And so I think until, um, until we get some real buy in from some of those municipal officials that um, feel like their communities will be taken care of under a new system, I don't know how much change we're going to see. But, you know, I think long term, it has to happen. It's just a matter of how do we design a system that's really going to be fair.
0: Now, uh, one thing that uh, you have recently done uh, that makes those who aren't necessarily a fan of what they perceive to be as an anti uh, sports stance, whether that's fair or unfair, because if I'm not mistaken, you're a chiefs (laughs) fan, are you not?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I've, grown up
0: but that doesn't necessarily being, that's not necessarily good in st louis right
1: <laughs> i know uh, no, that
0: <laughs> that means you but, are a fan. but
1: the thing is and this is what i try to tell folks like we we have a responsibility to separate personal um affinity for something um from what is in the best interest of the public And, you know, there's a saying like, if you don't own your emotions, your emotions own you. Right. So, you know, you have to as much as you might want something to stay or you might like it or you might enjoy going to games, if it's going to have unintended consequences that then end up hurting a lot of folks and hurting the credit of the city and and having all of these repercussions then that's my responsibility mm-hmm. as a public officials to make sure that our public money is used well and i have to put that ahead of any personal feelings i have toward any sports team yeah.
0: and i and i, I completely understand uh, where you're coming from there is somebody who does a radio show and sometimes there's business decisions that have to be made and it's like, why are you doing it? <laughs> yes. But I, you know, I can explain it. But if it still doesn't appeal to emotions, it, it it can be reviewed in a negative light. So I I get that. This, however, I think for the most part, anyway, has been received at least with our audience positively. Uh, your marijuana bill, correct? Uh, the bill would uh, uh, only allow penalties for possession of more than two ounces of marijuana or more than ten marijuana plants, and there would also be penalties for anyone under twenty-one years old using marijuana or anyone selling it to someone under twenty one. What kind of reception have you gotten on this uh this recent?
1: Incredibly positive. I mean I, I think that, you know, I've gotten maybe a handful of negative emails about this, but for the and most where are those, part...
0: Are coming from constituents? No, um, from, mostly
1: from St. Louis County, I mean, actually. I'm, I'm admit, <laughs>
0: so, some, some AOL.com Yes.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. Um, but I, I think most folks feel like it's a pretty common sense measure. I mean, what it does is it basically says that we're not going to use our police resources to enforce state and federal marijuana laws within the city of St. Louis. I mean, we know that marijuana is becoming decriminalized and legal throughout cities and states across this country. We know that we spend a a disproportionate amount of money within uh, the city focusing our police resources on this. We've had, you know, since we moved to a fine for a hundred or sorry, for 35 grams or less, Mm Um, in 2013, we've had over 700 people who have gotten those fines. They're all for possession. Um, and I think most of us are, are under the, you know the, the feeling that why are we penalizing? Why are we criminalizing something? Why are we spending our police resources on something that, um, that you can go to other cities and, and use and mm-hmm. not be concerned about that?
0: What kind of response do you think you will get from your cohorts?
1: it's an educational process. I mean, you know, we definitely have some folks on the board right away who said, you know, this will make, you know, everything worse than St. Louis. But the the fact of the matter is when you, you actually look at the data and you look at the places that um, have decided not to allocate their police resources to this, um, you see more tax revenue generated. You see um, a a greater uh, relationship, a better relationship between police and the community. You see um, police resources being put toward actually solving and addressing violent crime, not so much these, you know, petty possession offenses. But then you also see health benefits. I mean, places that have uh, decriminalized or or legalized in some way have had a nearly 30% drop in opiate usage. And we know that we are having a huge heroin and opioid epidemic, not just in St. Louis city, but across this entire state. Mm-hmm. And if, so, if we can use uh, you know, a product that has never caused somebody to overdose or die um, to help wean people off of something that is literally killing people. We had more people die of overdoses in the city of St. Louis last year than we had die of homicide and yet it's not something that we talk about. And um, and so I think this is a common sense measure on, on a lot of ways.
0: And is this something that would be dictated by the Board of Aldermen, or would this go to the people of the city? Of so it, um, How would it play
1: because out? there's not an explicit funding mechanism attached, we don't have to take it to a vote. So um, it could just go straight through the Board of Aldermen. Okay.
0: Okay. And at this point, if you had to lay down a nickel as to whether or not this thing is going to go through,
1: you know, it got assigned to a very challenging committee. It wasn't the committee that I thought that it was going to go to. Um, and so we're, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot of work to make sure it gets through that committee. But, um, you know i'm of the opinion that we're at the board of aldermen to do the people's business and i think that the people are very much behind this initiative mm-hmm. um and so it's going to reflect poorly upon the board if we can't get this done and can't get this out of the board of aldermen
0: uh, you might you may reference to megan earlier on the black lives matter movement you're a supporter of the black lives mm-hmm. matter movement uh and a number of people who will hear this conversation i would imagine i'm always trying to <laughs> d- address what i think will be critiques and give uh, give those voices a chance to ask the question via me uh, is if you're so pro city, then how can you be pro a movement that has disrupted business in mm-hmm. St. Louis via protests, whether that be this year uh, with the Stokely verdict or uh, a few years ago with Ferguson? What's your response to that?
1: I think that you know the the longer that I've been at the board, the more that I understand that the thing that drives policy in st louis city more than anything is money um and is the business community and i think that you know as we're we're looking at you know the protests being disruptive um we have to remember that racism is disruptive for folks every single day of their lives um when you feel like you can't walk down the street you can't leave your neighborhood you can't call the police like all of those things are disruptive and um and so if if putting pressure on the business community, who will then undoubtedly put pressure on City Hall to change, um, is what it's going to take to actually um, address some of these inequities, then, then that's what we have to do. Um, and does it, you know, does it, it suck? Yes, um, for for some of those business owners. But we're also allocating a ton of police resources to things that don't, need to be, you know, that they don't need to be allocated toward. I mean, I've been at protests where there are a hundred protesters there and 200 cops in riot gear show up um, to folks who aren't doing anything. And so when we look at, you know, how we're using our police resources, it's very costly the way that um, we're allocating and we're we're choosing to address the protests right now. And I think, you know, if we're concerned about money, we need to be concerned about that.
0: How do you think the protests this year over the last couple of months have been handled? Um, On both, I'm yeah, talking from the police standpoint, I, and also the protesters. Side.
1: Um you know, I I've been very impressed by the discipline of you know the protesters. We've um, we have some great frontline organizers who um, are there really to make sure that that actions are organized well and that folks are safe and and all of that. And I um, and I think that that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, What I have seen is an escalation of police force from 2014. Um, You know, back in 2014, I had just gotten elected um, when the non-indictment came down. I'd been in office, I think, about a month and a half. Um, And we had... pretty massive protests in the area that, that I was just elected to represent. And, um, I ended up spending that night in Mocha coffee shop with, uh, a number of constituents after we were tear gassed, um, not doing anything. We were in there warming up. I was actually standing on the patio, just kind of watching, um, the police response outside. There was barely anybody out on the streets and, um, And tear gas canister was thrown on the patio and it filled up the the building that had windows open um, with tear gas. And so after that, there was actually um, an injunction put in place that said that warning had to be given in order for chemical agents to be deployed. Um, What I have seen and experienced this time around is that warning not being given. Um, You know, I was tear gassed the first night of... Of protests after the Stockley verdict, and um, and none of us had any warning whatsoever. We were actually walking to our cars after we were given permission to pass through a police line, and uh, and so I guess a lot of my concerns are from a place where I feel like our police response has gotten worse, not better, since 2014, um, and. Uh, And that's why I have another bill at the Board of Aldermen, actually, that um, Board Bill 134, that uh, creates some guidelines around... um, police response to protests and it's it's modeled after Washington DC's ordinance who has probably the best ordinance in the country they obviously have to deal with a lot of protests there and they do it in a way that respects First Amendment rights that keeps people safe that isn't indiscriminately using chemical agents um in in military tactics and things like that and so you know we can do that in st. Louis um, we just have to to try
0: I think when people see the protest there's an there's a reaction Action from some uh, who are not for it and consider themselves supporters of the police—that <laughs> these are anti-police protesters. Uh, then there's a few highlights of a few people, whether it be like pulling down the, the potted plants uh, on Washington, and then and, and seeing what happened on the Loop one night, uh, and seeing, look at this, this is this is a representative rep- representative of what these things are about. And then they also hear the term black lives matter mm-hmm. and hear the term privilege. And I feel like that, again, I'm trying to psychoanalyze, I suppose, but, <laughs> but, but that, 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 that therefore it doesn't mean that their lives as a, a white person mm-hmm. matter and or you made reference to privilege a little earlier on, mm-hmm. that that is saying their success, if they have success, was not necessarily earned. And so I almost feel like the name of the mm-hmm. movement has done a disservice in some capacity to the movement itself, even if the movement actually has validity when you lay it out to people. They just don't like the name of the movement and they don't like the idea of being told that they're privileged, especially mm-hmm. if they're thinking, well, I think of privilege as somebody who's at like MICDS or Burroughs or something mm-hmm. like that, not— you know, like me, growing up in the 16th ward, I, I certainly when people say, "Oh, you had an advantage," I'm going, "I grew up on Tam Avenue." You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking of my friends at St. Louis U High. Some of them, I'm going, oh, "My God, there's a difference there." Right. So I feel like part of it is almost like the lexicon, and and therefore so, it, it gets put, puts yeah. people on the defensive as opposed to coming to the table to discuss.
1: So this is what I'll say. I think a lot of those folks also are very quick to say, "Well, you know, why can't today's leaders be like MLK?" You know, I, I support that civil rights movement. Well, MLK, in his letters to the the Birmingham jail, talked about something called the white moderate and actually said that the biggest threat to liberation of African-Americans was not the Ku Klux Klan or white supremacists. It was actually the white moderate who performed preferred order to justice, who said that I might agree with you, but I just don't agree with your tactics of getting there. Therefore, I'm gonna sit on the sidelines um, and I'm gonna critique from the sidelines, um, but I'm not gonna help you on the journey toward liberation because I don't like some of the things that you're doing. Um, and that's something that I you know, I try to use for myself all the time to not be that white moderate. I am not the one that is, um, that is oppressed. I'm not the one who has historically, you know, been, um, you know, had my family members, uh, be enslaved and brought here against their will. And then, you know, subjected to Jim Crow laws and, um, and disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. Like I have never experienced that. And so as a white person, my job is to listen to those who have those experiences and to follow their lead. Um, and it is not to judge on tactics. It is not to judge on um, on wording um, because my my experiences are not the same, um, and it's not fair for me to project my own experiences onto to somebody else. I mean, I I think that we have to say Black Lives Matter. Um, it, that does not mean that other lives don't matter. Um, but the focus has to be on black lives because we know too much about the disparity, not just in this city, but in this country., um, And by not focusing on, black lives, um, it's allowing us to shift the conversation from where it really needs to be. And so, yes, I hope we can one day get to a place where we can truthfully say that all lives matter equally, but we are not there as a country. And so until we are, we have to say black lives matter.
0: What tangibly, uh, outside of you know the, the words, what tangibly would indicate to you progress in that area of society?
1: You know, I I think a number of things. Um, You know, we, I think if we actually saw real investment going into parts of North City, I think if we saw our budget priorities as a city uh, shifting so that um, we were actually putting money into alleviating poverty, um, I think if we Uh, as a state got serious about raising the minimum wage to a place where it's actually a living wage. Um, You know, if we... uh We, you know, restructured our police department to really make sure it it is using community policing, that there are good relationships. Um, I think if we make real strides toward ending the war on drugs and treating addiction as a health issue and not as a criminal justice issue. I mean, all of those things, um, I think, are progress. But it's, you know, there's not a single thing that we can do that is going to fix this overnight. It's, you know, this has been... You know, since the founding of our country, um, you know, laws have been put in place to um, make sure that that certain folks don't have the same opportunity that others do. And so it's going to take an equally long time to undo that.
0: Do you feel like right now we're talking in 2017 that the climb is steeper than it was when you started in 2014 as the discourse seems to be more divided and harsh nationally and does that trickle back to the city of St. Louis and the region?
1: I, you know, I think that the, the discourse is harsher, but I think that's actually a good thing um, because we're talking, you know, we, we went a long time. I think we went probably about 20, 25 years where we were in this post-racial society, right, where racism didn't really exist anymore. There wasn't a such thing as disparity anymore. Um, but post-2014, we can't say that. Anymore. I mean, we know too much now um, to to have that be our narrative. And does that make folks uncomfortable to to have to be confronted with those truths? Of course it does. You know, anytime it um, anytime you know information comes out that makes us question our own place or privilege or whatever, our natural response is to get defensive. And um, and so it's going to take time for us to you know, to rethink the way that we, you know, approach our own communities and not get defensive, but really, you know, engage and listen.
0: I feel like there, maybe I'm off on this. Is there, is it fair to say that there is a, I don't know, a divide between you and some of your uh, fellow aldermen and alderwomen uh, and the president of the board of aldermen and the mayor, is that is that an accurate perception for those who don't necessarily monitor this as closely, of course, as somebody such as yourself who's in the trenches every day?
1: You know, I think we have differences in views on public policy. Um, you know, I, I come from a place where um, I think that St. Louis needs significant change and um, because it's not working for the majority of people who live there. And so if we need significant change, then we need to be able to rethink the way that we have done things in the past and really push some bold, transformative policy I think the approach of some others on the board is that we need to be more incremental or um, or there's this notion that we just can't do things because, you know, the state will step in and stop us from doing it or the city's not as liberal as Megan Green and and all of this stuff. And I and I'm of the opinion that we just have to stop saying that we can't. Um, and I get frustrated and I think that some of my peers get frustrated with me when because I don't back down in saying that these issues are urgent, we need to put an urgency behind them. I'm going to keep bringing up bills that force us to have conversations about tough issues and, you know, force us to make some policy decisions that are actually going to move the ball down the the road for, you know, folks that traditionally have not been heard by city government.
0: Are you more optimistic? With Lyda Cruson in office or less at this point?
1: You know, I, I think we don't know yet. Um, I'm obviously, I'm disappointed in Prop P um, because when she campaigned, you know, one of the things she campaigned on is that she's a CPA and she was going fi- to find money in the budget um, and audit the city before coming and asking for another tax increase. Um, And then here we are, you know, six months, a little bit more than six months into her term without an audit of the city um, and asking for a tax increase and a very regressive one at that. Um, You know, there is a group of us. I've been working since August with a group of of folks in the city um, called Audit St. Louis, where we've actually petitioned for a state audit and are collecting the signatures that we need to get a real state audit of uh, of this of city government, so we actually understand where our money is going and how much is not being allocated toward things that it's supposed to go toward. Um, that'll actually dive in more to the police overtime issue and and do all of that. Um, and so I guess what I would like to see from the mayor is a willingness to um, to be more visionary in how St. Louis could be, um, rather than just stopping at well these are our issues and 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 they're difficult. So um, you know, we're we're only going to push for a little bit of change.
0: being as vocal as you are, certainly outspoken, do you have aspirations which sometimes can be considered mm-hmm. as a negative yeah. to be yeah. ambitious in politics, but do you have aspirations to potentially be that voice uh, down the road?
1: Uh, I have no aspirations to be mayor.
0: I have never really
1: been interested. You know, so that you are I'm, you are happy with what you, I, I am. a I am a policymaker. I like legislation. I like public policy. You wouldn't enjoy the campaigning. I, I, of it. No, I, I like campaigning. It's more, you know, the mayor is an administrative function. You know, they're the ones that are making sure that all of these city departments are are running the way that they should. To me, that just that doesn't seem like the best use of my talents. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm i very well-schooled in public policy, in legislation and what other cities are doing. Um, and so legislative role really, I think, makes more sense for me than an administrative role like, like mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with that said, I will go where the people send me. Um, you know, I've been... Re- Recruited, you know, when I first ran for office, it was because folks in the community started stepping up and saying, "Hey, you should do this," and um, and I think that I've worked really hard when I'm in office um, to make sure that I am always listening to the voices of the people, and uh, and and I and as a result, I have earned the trust of a lot of folks in St. Louis who have no trust for city government. Mm-hmm. And that's what also makes me, will, you know, unwilling to, you know, cut the deal and things like that, because I don't want to lose that trust. It matters a lot to me.
0: All right. Let me get you out of here on some quick hits. Uh, much more uh, lighthearted than the previous hour. And we did get super wonky, but I like I, that.
1: I'm a wonk. I can't help it.
0: I, 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 I enjoyed going into uh, to Walkville. There's nothing wrong with that. And I'm sure plenty of our audience is like, man, I didn't know we would get this deep. But I like that. So. You are a proud uh, city resident. If you you could go three places to eat inside of the city of St. Louis, especially for people who aren't necessarily coming into the city, where is Megan Green going?
1: So three.
0: We can't be three. political and name oh, ten. That is so hard.
1: <laughs> um, Probably, so a place I eat probably once a week um, is Faux Grand. I was going to guess um, you're going to
0: name Faux Grand. I, I mean, I a lot of money just
1: love their calamari coconut curry dish. It is just amazing. I don't think I've ever ordered anything different on the menu because I've, the very first time I went there, I had that and I just got addicted to it. <laughs> um, you know, in terms of, let's see other place I like to go a lot uh, is Samim's. Oh. Um, you know I really like they have a really great lamb dish that with you know rice and um, and raisins and, and things like that in it that I I really like um, and then lately so I'm a pizza addict and I kind of switch I eat a type of pizza until I get really tired of it and then I switch to another place. <laughs> so right now I've really been into Jet's Pizza actually. Jet's Pizza. Like, for some reason, like the last maybe month and a half, I've, I've just really liked their, you know, deep dish corner pizza.
0: How do you, <laughs> as somebody who grew up not in New York City, but in upstate New York, feel about the St. Louis style pizza? Because this, my bet, just like I would have bet on Faux Grand being yeah. one of your three, would be you don't like it, but it's an awkward spot because you're a City of St. Louis representative.
1: You know, it's, I, I will eat it. Um, so that's not necessarily a yeah, raging it's, endorsement. It's, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, growing up in New York, like pizza is pizza if it's foldable. You fold it up, right. And, and you let
0: the grease drip and right, the whole deal.
1: And, you, and sometimes you put like extra mozzarella cheese <laughs> on the top and it just like, it melts into it sort of and it becomes all gooey. And so, you know- I'm always going to have my heart on New York style pizza, Um, but there are, you know, a number of St. Louis style pizza places that, you know, I'll.
0: You will go to. Yes, I will go to, and
1: I'm never going to turn down any kind of pizza because I just love pizza too much. What's the
0: best representative of New York style pizza in St. Louis? Is it Racanelli's? Um,
1: Racanelli's probably. Um, we just had Pizza Head open on South Grand, which is actually a vegetarian pizza wow. place, but it's New York style, and I mean huge, huge pies, and um, and you can't tell that it's vegetarian. I mean, the sausage tastes like sausage, and um, and so I. I've and eating, you know, from there, and they actually do it by the slice because that was the hard thing when I moved here too. Is there was not uh, a lot of places where you just go and get go your pizza the by the slice. Like when I'm
0: hanging out with some of my friends in New York. Like, oh, let's go get a slice, and yeah. I'm going. Oh, it's a slice, but I, that's that's what yes. it is. That's the deal.
1: You know, you it's a dollar, dollar fifty. You get your slice, and 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 you go. And so, you know that I'm glad that we're starting to see some pizza by the slice places. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you have downtime on the weekends, what are you doing?
1: You know, I like to run. A lot. Uh, That's. Uh, I've been a pretty avid runner, not as much as how far i far do you
0: run? I'm going to be very invasive and ask. Um, I can't. I mean, I can, but I yeah. can't really go long.
1: I mean, now I'm. I won't go longer than three miles. Before I ran for office, I was a very avid, you know, half marathon runner, oh, wow. and, um, and tra- You know, I ran a marathon, um, but I fractured my knee. Uh, a number of years ago. And it just, every time I start to get really up in mileage again, it just, it starts bothering me. So, I think I've had to learn that, you know, 5Ks are pretty much my limit now.
0: I understand (laughs) that. I respect that also. Do you go to, and do you look forward to going to Cardinal games, Blues games? Do you go down to Columbia? Mm -hmm. Where is your sporting interest? As I mentioned, you are a Chiefs fan.
1: I am a Chiefs fan. I really, I do like the Cardinals. Um, Didn't get to as many games as I would have liked to this year. Mm -hmm. I think probably only got to three or four. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but I definitely enjoy baseball and mm. you know when we get into the postseason in particular I always get very <laughs> riled up. You really,
0: you're fired up for that? <laughs> <laughs> yes
1: although this year has been hard because I got rid of TV and
0: you got rid of TV like TV
1: period? Uh, like I, I have Netflix and that's it. That's it um, that's
0: f- official cord cutter. Yes
1: so so it's been a little bit of an adjustment to you know find people in places that are allowing me to crash <laughs> to, uh, and to, to go and live watch things. Television. I
0: understand that. Uh, you said that in 92 one of the reason's why you got so interested in politics at 10 years old was mm-hmm. uh, President Bill Clinton's campaign uh, over the last 10 15 years who are some politicians who you I don't know if aspire to because mm-hmm. that would indicate potentially a- office ambition but who you admire
1: so i you know i was a huge bernie sanders supporter in the primary that wasn't you know i got to introduce him up at the rally in St. Charles, which was probably like one of the highlights of my life. <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, I really like Elizabeth Warren, uh, as well. Kamala Harris, um, folks that I feel like, you know, speak a lot of truth to power that, um, are okay being the lone no vote on something. Um, cause I think sometimes you, you have to, you know, vote to prove a point, not necessarily because you're going to win, um, or to elevate an issue. So those are, you know, those are folks that I've been looking up to a lot.
0: Do you, you mentioned a couple of people who have at least been mentioned for the presidential race in mm-hmm. 2020 in, uh, Warren and, and Harris. Uh, how would you feel about that? I, mean, I don't know if Bernie would yeah. come back like Jordan and, uh, make another run. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I'd be excited for either one of them. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I sit on the DNC now and um, I got elected to the DNC after the the last uh, Democratic primary here in the state. And so I've been working kind of to help rebuild the National Party and also doing a lot of work with our state party to help rebuild it. Um, but I'm just I'm interested in, in candidates that um, are really interested in addressing income inequality are. Um, uh are willing to address racial inequality that recognize that some of the The policies that the Democratic Party has been pushing for the last 20 years really have been to the benefit of big business and not necessarily to working people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so any candidate that is going to support those ideals, I'm going to be behind.
0: Well, I have really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you have. I have too. I I don't even know how long I kept you. Monster, what was the count? Hour 20? Hour 10? We're
1: at 117.
0: 117. Wow. The record record for what Gary Pinkle, (laughs) head football coach of Missouri, was an hour and 22 minutes in his kitchen. Megan, I really appreciate Thank you, Thank you Thank so much. You. So there it is, Alderwoman Megan Green spending time with us here in the homeloneexpert.com studio. So many things uh, stood out to me over the course of that conversation. Um, you know, I know when you talk race in St. Louis, it's it's instantaneous hot button. It, it, it's essentially, it's not limited to St. Louis. Uh, you bring it up and it's, it's, it's automatic controversy. Um, but... When I asked her, and I didn't know this was the direction she was going to go, about her impressions when she first moved to St. Louis, this was at the very beginning of the interview, and she spoke to what stood out to her uh, as being the racial division impeding progress. Um, I, personally, even though Megan and I would differ on some uh, political issues and uh, would perhaps vote in different ways on specific issues. Uh, I couldn't agree with her more in that capacity. I truly believe that. uh, And I enjoyed that part of the discussion. And even if I would disagree, I enjoyed hearing her perspective as to why uh, she was a supporter of a variety of different elements of St. Louis and St. Louis politics and in particular, uh, issues and to hear somebody be able to elaborate as opposed to 15 second sound bites. Um, it gives me more information. It gives me a more informed opinion. And, um, I certainly enjoyed that. I wasn't expecting to spend an hour and 20 minutes, but, uh, I, I, enjoyed it, uh, regarding the Rams situation, which I know a lot of people would be interested in. Um, yeah, you know. Chaos is is how it, it, it came off to me and I wasn't in those meetings and I wasn't in on the vote. Uh, hopefully here in the next few weeks we'll be talking with Dave Peacock and get his perspective on it. But, uh, you know, one of the theories that we discussed there was that they knew that it wasn't going to be a positive outcome. Uh, and so it was being done for political cover, again, a theory and what Megan's contention is, okay, I've heard that too. I don't know it to be the case, but I do know that we wound up spending $16 million on it. So if that were the case, then that would make it even more disappointing. Um, so uh, her thought process on the MLS stadium vote, she just was of the opinion, not necessarily because she hates sports, as you heard her later talk about, but that, that the people of St. Louis aren't going to vote yes for a publicly financed stadium. Uh, And that is something that really uh, divides a lot of people in the area because the thought process is it benefits St. Louis to spend this money. And it just depends on which governmental philosophy uh, you subscribe to on that. But that is her perspective on that topic. And then I also found something that I didn't really, I mean, I guess if you dig into it, perhaps it makes sense. But um, how it is her opinion that that the 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 ability to get things done in the area uh, is hampered by what seems to be some kind of uh, disconnect between the mayor and the alderman and the president of the Board of aldermen and the alderman. Um, and uh, and and maybe for some of you, you're like, yeah, of course, but for me, that was something that I uh, hadn't heard before. So it seems like, her contention is that Mayor Slay and now Mayor Cruson represent um, a more conservative element of St. Louis City politics, and as long as that is the case, things aren't going to get done. Now, we need to hear from Mayor Cruson and, and former Mayor Slay and, and get their perspective on it, um, but that is, that's where Megan is coming from. So, uh, as always, I welcome you to uh, A support the sponsors B give a review on iTunes or wherever you may podcast as it helps the podcast. And many of you have done so please continue to do so. And then C uh, send me an email with your feedback and it can be positive. It could be negative. It could lead to a discussion. It could lead to one of the questions from the audience. We will discuss on our Wednesday shows. Uh, I enjoy that. Uh, And perhaps if you send it in uh, today, this interview is airing on Monday, November 5th, 2017, we could wind up using it for questions from the audience Uh, for Wednesday, November 7th, 2017. Uh, But I enjoy those. I enjoy getting the feedback and uh, and getting a gauge on where people are and what we are doing. So please feel free to do that as well at Tim McKernan at InsideSTL.com. Want to make sure that we thank Megan Green. Of course, want to thank my producer, John Seymour. And thank you for listening to another edition of the Tim McKernan Show here on the InsideSTL Podcast Network.